I certainly hope people don't find this episode mediocre. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'll, I'll probably do a pretty good job of embarrassing myself, so I'll, do, I'll take the heavy lifting on that one. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, episode 64, I am joined by Dr. Elon Mitchell-Smith. Dr. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing just fine. Thanks so much. And how are you? I, I'm doing. I'm doing really well. I'm really excited about this episode. I've, I've. Those who have been following my Twitter feed will definitely know that over the last mm, six, seven, eight months, somewhere in there, I've been getting pretty heavy into late medieval, early Renaissance uh, gaming, and so I, I've been wanting to talk about medieval gaming for some time, and that's what we're definitely here to talk about. I. I'm pleased as punch because you are, in fact, a professor of medieval, excuse me, doctor of medieval literature at I am, uh, yeah. is it University of California at uh, Long Beach. Is that correct? I am. Yeah. Cal State Long Beach. Okay. Cal State Long Beach. Excuse me. And uh, so you're definitely very well qualified to, to discuss the topic. And I think before we get too much further, I'll have to ask you the same question I ask every first guest, and that is, what makes you a veteran war gamer? I don't, I, I don't know if I if I qualify. I feel like um, I I would not claim the title of veteran for um, for any reasons. I, I haven't served, and um, I've in terms of war gaming, I feel like I've been around for a while, and I guess maybe I'm old, you know, because I'm in my 50s, like that could qualify, <laughs> but I've always felt like I have not gotten to war game as much as I want to, and I think probably everybody feels that way, but um, I still feel like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm old hat at any of it. Um, I, I feel like I'm still exploring, even though I, I guess I have quite a bit painted for miniatures, and I have played a fair amount of games. So I guess mm-hmm. maybe just that I've been around it for a while. Okay. And uh, what were some of the first games you recall playing? Like proper hobby games? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's good that you said that because I have, there was a line of toys that had green metal bases when I was young. And what I remember is there were like Cowboys, Civil War, and Medieval. Like those were the three mm-hmm. ranges. And with a single Monopoly die, me and my friend Quentin had some pretty epic battles. You know, like Mm. you can go three stairs on a forced march, but it means you lose a figure, you know. Mm -hmm. In terms of proper war games, I spent most of my youth as a role player. And then, um, you know, I was aware that people did historical miniatures, but I just wasn't uh, in a place where I could figure it out or find a way into it. Um, and the miniature painting that I did was, was like a role player does, you know, like Mm -hmm. one figure here, one figure there. If I had six or seven, I felt like it was a ton of a certain kind. Um, but, um, I worked at a, at, at a big game store on the East coast called the complete strategist. Mm. And so, um, that's where I bought like my first Britannia, um, uh, bookcase game and, um, and I feel like uh, there were some Steve Jackson little micro games that I was playing. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I guess I didn't really start role playing, didn't start wargaming seriously in the way that I would talk about it until um, 
I would say the nineties. Okay. But I, I do feel, I do feel like in the seventies and the, especially and the early eighties, by the mid eighties, I think it was changing, but, but especially in the seventies, if you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, you were doing a kind of historical war game in mm-hmm. the sense that it was like, um, it was someone's ima- image of medieval dress or armor or warfare or carts or cities or whatever the case, plus magic. Right. Um, and that's still my favorite fantasy. My, my favorite fantasy is still when, when I see like a, a suit of 15th century plate and then there's a wizard or, and then there's like a, a, a Pegasus or something like sure. that's the thing that I love the best. So I guess I mark the beginning of my interest in historical gaming from role-playing in the seventies, but it wasn't until the nineties that I really started um, exploring some proper, proper war games. Okay. And uh, in, in that era, in that nineties era, um, which is really when, I started myself. What were some of the titles that drew your attention? Well, I was a I was a um, in a group called the Society for Creative Anachronism, which I think mm-hmm. many of your listeners will be familiar with. And um, right. that run the people who are involved in that group run the gamut of like um, of uh, different levels of engagement with history. My my group specifically was very interested in in medieval reenactment, and there was a guy in that group that turned me on to DBA. Antiquitatis, and I really liked that game and it seemed very manageable but then I moved away for school and I wasn't able to like find my way into a group again um for DBA but I did find my way to a hobby shop that sold old glory figures Mm -hmm. and at the time I was writing a role-playing game set in fifth century Britain and um, so I, I, I bought bags of Old Glory minis that were roughly from that period so that I could use them for the role-playing game. And we ended up using those for war games using... Um, Columbia Games has a role-playing game called Harnmaster, and mm-hmm. Harnmaster had a miniature battle game called... Um, uh, what was it called? Harnmaster Battle System or something like that. And so we played a lot of miniature games um, on a very small scale that were connected to our role playing, and that was really the first, the the that was really the the first games that I was playing once I got into it. Okay, so as as you progress through your educational career, uh, you got your, where did you get your your undergraduate degree? Uh, my Undergraduate was from UC Davis, um, which was a place that had a major in medieval studies specifically, interdisciplinary, which I really liked. Um, mm-hmm. And then I did my master's degree also in medieval studies as it with an interdisciplinary uh, focus at Fordham University in the Bronx. And then I went to Texas A&M for my PhD in medieval lit. Oh, excellent. Um, now, I did know about the Texas A&M connection because one of my other guests, he, uh, Nick Nethery, uh, listeners will recognize him from my top phase with Dave and Nick episodes. Uh, we've, we've got one coming soon. I mentioned to Nick and a couple other friends that you'd be on the show. And he mentioned that he was an undergrad there at A&M while you were uh, a professor getting, working on your doctorate. Oh, neat. That's cool. So, uh, I, I guess what we need to start doing now is, 
if we're going to discuss a particular term, I think the biggest discussion in this episode is going to be what does medieval mean? What do we mean when we say medieval? <clears throat> yeah, and, that's a good yeah. question. I don't, I don't really have an answer for it. Um, <laughs> or, or <laughs> I mean, I don't. It's tricky. It's uh, medieval. Um, Ivum means age or period, and medi means the middle one. Mm-hmm. And so this is a term that um, is used to talk about the period between the classical period and the Renaissance. And I think that it was a term that... Um, was used in the Renaissance because they saw themselves as carrying on the traditions of Rome and thinking of the Middle Ages as a period where nothing happened. And that's largely still the perception. And so mm-hmm. medieval is kind of a broken term anyway, right. um, but for but it's what we have. And so for me, when I use it, I try to use it only to refer to Western Europe and England. Um, and in the in English departments like mine, I tend to take it from 500 to 1500, just because it's a real simple break off. Mm-hmm. And usually be when you get into the 1500s, that in an English department indicates the Renaissance. But mm-hmm. um, I, I direct, I'm co-director of the Center for Medieval Renaissance Studies at Cal State Long Beach. Um, and my co-director is a art historian. And, uh, you know, she's, she's a Renaissance art historian and she works on stuff that's earlier than what I work on. So it's mm-hmm. different in different peer- periods. Right. Right. Um, yeah. You know, because the, you know, what, what we define as medieval is, is important because when you're saying, you know, 500, that's not too long after the Romans abandoned Britain. Right. Yeah. And 1500 is, you know, not too long after the fall of Constantinople and the Reconquista in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I could, I could certainly buy those bookends yeah uh, if you'd like to use that yeah i mean i think i think Uh, they work pretty well and especially for wargaming in my mind um you know depending on where you are it's going to change but if we're talking about england and western europe before 500 we're in we're probably in some kind of period that could involve rome right and then after 500 um things are much more local and the warfare um, looks different and people are wearing uniforms if we're painting miniatures. And I, there just seems to be some big shifts in there um, that go along with the larger shifts for me, which is that English starts in England after the year 500 because that's when Germanic people were coming there with their languages. Now, I have seen some people set 1066 as the start of the medieval period as well, of course, being the Battle of Hastings and the uh, conquering of England by uh, William of Normandy. Yeah, I mean, that's and... a super important time, you know, um, and so that is a huge shift as well. And so if people want to do that, like, I, <laughs> I'm i fine with it. Um, I think yeah. for like, for me and for my interests after that after the year 1000, more or less, you can kind of talk about something like knights in England. And before it, you really mm-hmm. can't so much. And that seems like a huge change. But also um, after that period, we start in England, the language that you and I are speaking right now starts to be the norm, which uh, around uh, 1200 or a little bit before, maybe we might call Middle English, but it definitely turns into our language, mm-hmm. whereas the English from before that period is very different. Um, but I think a lot of people who do that, um, who set medieval starting in 1066, 
probably are deploying the, the term dark ages for the period before that. Um, mm. And uh, I, I might be wrong. That might not be the case across the board. But um, but the the people that I the people that I read and that I work with tend not to use the word dark ages. It, um, and it and I and I think for good reasons. And so I think early medieval and late medieval might be the might be the most generally accepted way, at least in academia and among the people that I read. Just to compartmentalize what really shouldn't or couldn't be compartmentalized. Yeah, we're, we're probably looking five hundred to a thousand for early medieval in in quotation marks and five hundred to or one thousand to fifteen hundred you know, neatly breaking that into manageable 500 year chunks. Yeah, which I think is nice to do anyway, just to make it all very simple, yeah. Now, um, you did mention DBA, and I, I do wanna talk about the different rule systems that are out there and some of the figure lines, but there are some, I think there's some interesting things to explore within that era, you know, however you wanna bookend it, that I think um, we, we should probably talk, you know, What's what is the appeal of gaming in this era, to your to your mind, or in these eras? If if, if you're wanting to break down specifics between, you know, a game like Saga, which is quote unquote Dark Ages, early medieval, whatever right. term you want to apply, yeah. more warband raiding parties, you know, smaller smaller actions, usually based around a central heroic figure and maybe his uh, chosen men or you know raiding party boat crew what what have you and then as we move forward you're starting to see larger and larger military formations to the point where you've got uh you know you get into towards the hundred years war now you're talking you know what we would recognize as as an army with thousands of people and you know they've got a budget and you know, right. people that are responsible for getting them food and making sure that they're getting paid for and and, and you know not just paid for but getting paid and that and, and that sort of thing so what's the draw there i mean there there are a couple different things i'm thinking of that draw me to this period um but where, where's the appeal you think for for the gamer I think there's a number of appeals to a game in and around the Middle Ages. Um, and I, I think there are ways that probably, that there are things that I can say that make me sound more smart. Um, and I'll work mm. my way up to those. Um, the, the main draw for me from the, young, from the earliest days was that for whatever reason, the Middle Ages is the period that we associate fantasy literature with. And that's and mm -hmm. and I've always loved fantasy as a genre. Um, I like other kinds of speculative or imaginative fiction, like science fiction. But fantasy has always been the thing that I've that I'm drawn to, and the reasons for that are probably pretty complicated. But um, but there's but there's an industry involved in making um, in helping to me to imagine the period, whether realistically or in fantasy. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's a big draw, you know, the, um, just in general. I also think that uh, there is a way, and some of this is historical and some of it is less historical, but there is a way that we think about the Middle Ages as a period where individualism 
is more apparent in the stories. And I don't think that's necessarily mm -hmm. the case, but um, the Middle Ages tends to be a period without uniforms. And if there are uniforms, it's kind of an interesting um, mechanism where you do find people paying their men-at-arms in bolts of cloth, which means that there might be similar colors, but the clothing might be different, or the shades might be different, or the way that it's used. And I think that's really interesting. And, and the kind of final expression of that is heraldry, which in the later Middle Ages and into the early Renaissance is just so neat and cool and simultaneously indicates that you're part of a group, but also that you're kind of an individual mm -hmm. and doing your own thing. And it follows like these very specific rules that are fun to learn about and nerd out. So um, I think uh, all of that is interesting. And then um, for me personally, there was a great deal of technological change during the Middle Ages. And I think that's probably true of any period but to, probably because it's the period I look at most, um, th there seems to be more change in terms of how people were doing things in the Middle Ages. And I like thinking about those issues. I think um, if we look at it in terms of technology, which I think is a good way to do it, like the coming of the longbow or the, or the, the mm -hmm. use of the longbow, immediately that brings up some of the questions of technological like um, evolution or change. Um, that happen in warfare. Like, is that an element of, uh, of uh, an artifice that becomes available, like an actual material or a production model? Mm -hmm. Or is it social organization? Is it is it just that the longbow is powerful because of Sunday archery practice? I think that's interesting. We People have had long mm -hmm. spears forever. So why in the 15th, 15th and 16th centuries does the pike kind of come back? And what was it about the the... 13th century in Scotland, where it seemed like it was the same thing. Like, that's just kind of an interesting thing to think about. And I really like, I mean, right. knights and chivalry are what I did my PhD on. It's my main area of research. Um, and so I also find it interesting um, to, to trace the, the change of armored noble on horseback from the 6th century all the way to the 16th century even in the context of um, his usefulness um, diminishing greatly, uh, yet mm -hmm. yet there's still a cultural position that, that he occupies. I'm saying he because most of the time these people would be gendered masculine. Right. Um, that, that I love tracing and I think is really interesting. So, so I just feel like it's a very rich period um, for fantasy and for nerding out and for aesthetics like <laughs> armor, which is, I mean, you can make your arguments if you'd like to about first century Roman legionnaire kit, but it doesn't compare to 15th century mirrored plate. It just doesn't, <laughs> you know, I don't know that anything right. does. Um, so those are some of the reasons why I like the period. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the technology and, and you mentioned the, the way things were made and uh, basically the, the social structure that evolved in basically how everything was made, you know, towards the beginning of the period, you've got very, you know, very small numbers of artisans in a particular area working on their one thing. And that, that pretty much progresses through the period, but there's that, you know, splotch right in the middle of history. They're in the middle of the 14th century with the coming of the bubonic and sure. yeah. uh, pneumonic plates that, you know, all of a sudden in a, you know, prior to that, 
we were used well not we but they were used to having ample labor and scarce resources so getting something made wasn't a big deal you just had to get the stuff because there was plenty of cheap labor available right and then all of a sudden the workforce gets slashed in half Mm -hmm. and that you know and there's these abundant stocks of resources and that model gets flipped all of a sudden you've got labor as your primary expense and the resources not so much and then you start seeing a great deal of artistry going into things like armor and you know filigree on weapons and that sort of thing because you know well i'm gonna spend this much money just getting the thing made might as well make it look good too right yeah and and then there's a that fascinating you know era there where you know plague keeps picking up and the and the uh population doesn't really restore itself for another two three hundred years where you know people figure out hey if we get together (laughs) you know yeah and form these guilds and we form these these associations we can protect each other from from abuses and we can make a decent living yeah yeah and then that changes the nature of warfare also because you can't really have a peasant levy if you need every single peasant working yeah (laughs) literally every single peasant working to keep society moving so all of a sudden we have to start paying people to fight and then if we're going to pay somebody to fight might as well get people who are really good at fighting (laughs) yeah yeah right and and then we start getting the early modern period we're talking about standing state armies and that's a whole other thing but uh you know we start getting into you know formations like tercios and people like gustavus adolphus and and things like that but that's well outside our our targeted era today yeah but it's also a great period yeah but yeah that in its own right because you know if you you know if you think the the late medieval period is colorful whoa daddy wait (laughs) just wait a minute yeah Uh, but there is that you know and that technological thing that you mentioned earlier you know you've got the the early stages of gunpowder you mm-hmm. know here and you know dribs and drabs during the hundred years war and then we get into the italian wars which arguably you're getting to the renaissance period but we'll allow it you know for the sake of artists <laughs> yeah and also i think you and i are actively painting and collecting in that period so let's go ahead and let's include that in the middle ages <laughs> absolutely might as well yeah. right so yeah there's there's something for everybody um and i think that i mean you're spot on when you say you know it 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 is the the template for most western uh you know european north american concepts of fantasy or high fantasy anyway where you take a guy on a horse with a bunch of armor or a gal in some cases and you put a you put a wizard next to him, all of a sudden you've got a fantasy setting. Right. Yeah. And and a good fantasy setting. I mean, that's kind of the frustration for me in the last ten years is that it seems like every fantasy artist feels the need to reinvent armor. And um I just don't think that's necessary. <laughs> you know, I think they like they pretty much nailed it back then, you know. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I mean, there's there are certain practicalities about the way armor is designed. And like you're saying, like you just said, you know, some of the 
you know, I, I'm not one to poo-poo anybody's imagination, but some of these armor designs are just a, you know, they're a little too far out there. I mean, some of these shoulder pads with spikes on them and whatnot. Yeah. Okay, so the guy's going to impale his own head if he raises his arm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, I say that with the full understanding that I, I am an Old Hammer fan, and I've had mm-hmm. multiple shows about the Old Hammer concept. And, you know, a lot of the older Warhammer stuff wasn't, it wasn't like that. You know, it was more rooted in practical armor until you get into the chaos stuff and then it starts getting weird but i mean it's allowed to it's chaos for crying out loud yeah yeah the chaos stuff was always that case but i mean i don't know if i qualify as being old hammer i came in at, on fifth edition but six was my absolute mm-hmm. favorite but in my mind yeah when i started playing like i thought there were some cool models across the board but man those perry empire figures and then oh yeah that those just knocked me like out and I just could not get enough of those. And it's still, you know, the Perry's are my favorite sculptors and it's because of, um, it's because of the empire army from that period um, Mm -hmm. that, that I just couldn't get enough of. Yeah. And it was like, it was exactly what I like. It was his, they were historical figures plus a little thing that was weird or interesting. Mm -hmm. And and one thing you definitely look at with the period, we'll definitely come back to talking about the miniatures. We'll kind of, end with that but in the meantime um i mean there's certainly an argument to be made that as far as the people living in the period were concerned uh, they were living in a fan what we would consider a fantasy setting because they thought things like goblins and fairies and dragons existed you know to a certain degree yeah to a certain i mean there's always yeah, this is this is a thing that I that I am very interested in. But in general, I think I agree with you. Um, I do think that I do think that um, I get a lot of mileage out of making some connections with the medieval reader, at least, which is not the every person of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it shuts down analysis when you read a story like Beowulf and you think, well, yeah, that's what people thought back then. And it opens up analysis when you think, look, we like stories set in the past that have fantastic elements um, and that celebrate or or criticize um, men who are capable of violence. Beowulf is exactly that. Beowulf is set in 500 years before it's written. It's set somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it has fantastic elements that probably the people at the time didn't necessarily think were were real, except maybe like us, they think that maybe they existed in the distant past or something. Um, Mm -hmm. so, So I find it much more useful to see them as fantasy enthusiasts rather than people who thought that all of their fantasy literature was real. And I think I might be overstating that. I think like, especially for the, you know, the peasant who lives in a very rural area, like, yeah, they thought some wacky stuff. Um, But I guess uh, just in terms of what, what opens up my analysis, I like to draw uh, um, similarities rather than differences. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Since we're speaking literature anyway, and of course, that's your that is your realm of expertise. Um, when we're talking about getting into this period, what are for you? What are some of the key titles that someone might investigate either on the written page or by audiobook? 
Um, you know, there's just so much written for this period um, that is fun that it's hard to answer, but I think I, I'm going to um, answer as the nerd that I am and hope that your mm -hmm. listener is a similar kind of nerd. Um, because I, I tend to be drawn towards uh, stuff that that is similar to the games that we play in the sense that it has to do with violence or monsters or um, uh, men who are in the fighting vocation. Um, and I also am a little bit, you know, I'm an old guy and I have very set notions for how things should be done that they're not be done. So I have my list of complaints. You'll hear some of that. Um, uh, I think that people should not read Beowulf unless they want to buckle in for a very complicated ride. I think that instead, in the early medieval period in England, um, if, they're, if we're talking about primary sources, which I think is what you were asking, stuff actually written in the period, I think the Battle of Malden is a great introduction to some of the ways that like um, early English people were thinking about quote unquote warrior culture. And it's not really history, but it is based on a historical event. And um, it's definitely a good window into a certain kind of thinking about men with swords and what they should or shouldn't do. Um, the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about the early medieval period, the, the thing that I, I would prefer people to think about with the early medieval period is just how much they define themselves by writing stories set in the past, like we do. Hmm. And mm -hmm. so one of the most heroic and exciting and interesting um, Anglo-Saxon or early English uh, war stories is actually the Old English Exodus. So it's Exodus from the Bible, but retold in, Old Eng in the Old English language and according to their own fantasy of warrior identity. And it's just really cool. Um, and it's not, a, and it's, um, much more about early English identity and their perceptions of heroic ideals than it is about the Old Testament. Um, so those are some from the early period that I enjoyed. There are some more that I like reading, um, uh, but those are a few of them. I just started um, reading an epic called Sanjata or Sindhyata, um, which comes from Sub-Saharan Africa, from um, from what was the kingdom of Mali in around the 12th or 13th mm -hmm. century, but it's part of an oral tradition. And I'm finding that to be super interesting. Um, we don't tend to be exposed to what's happen happening in Africa, south of the Sahara um, in the same period as um, some of our like most exciting medieval moments in the West. And so I'm really enjoy, enjoying reading that and reading about um, uh, uh, the, the culture that both produced that text and also the oral culture that kept it alive. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm liking that. In the later medieval period, um, there's a historian called Foissart who chronicles the Hundred Years' War. And that's a primary source that I think everybody can enjoy a little bit of. And he covers some of the big battles. And um, I don't know that you can trust his account so much, but it definitely puts you in the mood of like a kind of pro-English um, uh, mood for the Hundred Years' War. So I guess those are some to start on. Um, but if you were to ask me in terms of wargaming, 
I do think that there's an artificial uh, exclusion of everything that's not considered to be history in the way that we talk about sources. And I think that's a little bit unclear, so let me elaborate. Um, we consider ourselves historical wargaming, wargamers because we're interested in history and we want things that are historically kind of viable. When you actually look at some of the games that we play sometimes, especially people like me who are a little bit uh, loosey-goosey with the history, often it's not mm -hmm. history. It's based on something a little bit different. Um, like I put on a game once, a skirmish game once, um, that was based on a Icelandic saga called Greder Saga, which is a, which is a fun read, um, although it meanders like all sagas do. Um, and there's a big fight that happens in Greta Saga over a beached whale and who has the, um, the driftage rights because there was um, a, a shortage of food. Um, and that was just a great game to put on. I loved having a beached whale model, which my friend Harold made for me. Um, but, and, and we can call that historical miniature gaming, but if we're being honest, it's literary war gaming because it comes from literature. And that's not really a category that we have, but if we did, it would open up a lot and it would be really fun, right? If we were to wargame the tournament that happens in the Knight's Tale, then um, what we would have is like 15th century or late 14th century knights, but um, acting as if they were in ancient Greece in a tournament between two great statues of Mars and Venus. Like that would just be a cool thing to look at. And it would be entirely right. historically accurate in the sense that it comes from a, a primary text written in that period, but without having to be a battle. And so if mm -hmm. I had my way for war gamers to start reading stuff from the period, I would encourage everybody to, to play around with literary war gaming um, especially because um, it might offer some things that historical wargaming doesn't. Okay, and so that would also, you know, potentially bring in, you know, the the King Arthur legends. Sure. You know, yeah, and it would which, which interesting thing in and of itself. Yeah, and it would bring up for me what is some of the most interesting things about reading history, which is that um, Arthur comes from every period, and ultimately if you find the historical period that Arthur might have come from, you will have left everything about King Arthur behind. So what I mean by that is that most people want chivalry with King Arthur. They mm -hmm. want um, heavy armor that we associate with knights. They want castles made of stone. They want kings and queens who are the heads of nations. All of that takes, uh, takes off in England and the West around the year 900 or a thousand and the historical Arthur probably would have come from you know the fifth century or maybe the sixth century before knights before stirrups before the kind of plate armor that we want before castles made of stone before everything so I think what mm -hmm. the more his the interesting historical project is is to be like we're going to game Arthur Mallory style which means everybody's going to be in mid 15th century plate um but there's also going to be giants Right, which is something you find mm -hmm. in Mallory's Mort to Arthur. But that would be very different if you were to wargame Chrétien de Troyes in his romances from France in the 12th century, which is a totally different look for what the knights would have been wearing or the, their heraldry, like a just completely different thing. And that kind of awareness of the different periods 
and the different aesthetics and the different tactics that each period offers, all based around the notion of Arthur, like that would be a project that I would love to be involved in. You know, just looking at, at Arthur, I mean, you could make an entire academic career out of that. And you personally know someone <laughs> who has. <laughs> right, yeah. So I kind of threw up a couple of sources, uh, secondary secondary sources mm-hmm. that I've been diving into, uh, mostly on Audible, but one of them I have read you know, in the actual written page in the actual physical book, those, those still do exist. And you've got one here and I wanted to talk about that as well. Um, now my, my first one that I'm going to mention is the face of battle by John Keegan and Uh entire book covers three different British battles, uh, Agincourt, Waterloo, and, uh, the Somme. So of course I'm ju- we're just talking about the 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 section on Agincourt, um, and the face of battle is is interesting because it the book attempts to capture what it's like to be in a battle, and in the foreword John Keegan states straight up I'm I'm not a soldier, I've never been in a battle, you know, but it is my job to because when he wrote it he was. He was a professor at Sandhurst, the the British Military Academy, and mm-hmm. said it's my job to prepare men for battle. So this is my attempt at looking at the primary sources of the day and trying to stitch, as well as archaeological evidence as it existed in the 1970s, as far as this is what battle is like. And it's kind of interesting to the the hard copy version I have actually has on its cover a uh, a mailed head or a head with a male coif mm-hmm. from Visby in oh, really? uh, Denmark. Oh, cool! Yeah, the North, not but the Baltic, but sure, yeah, um, yeah. But that Visby finds so, it so important for for um, learning about armor. Yeah, right. And uh, so. The book is divided roughly into thirds, like I said, between Agincourt, Waterloo, and the Somme. And it, you really get the, an impression of what it was like in the what it was like during that battle, and you know, basically how bad the French had it. And it, anyone that's got any appreciation already for the Battle of Agincourt, you you can't go wrong because it'll it'll bring up stuff you already know and maybe teach a few new things. And if it's your first time reading about Agincourt, it's a pretty good place to start also. Um, also want to mention A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman. It's a history of medieval Europe in the 14th century, France in particular, through the lens of a particular noble. And his name was Angron de Cousy. And he was kind of the Harry Flashman of France, almost, because he was everywhere, or the Richard Sharp of France, because he was everywhere throughout the period. And right. um, and it's interesting because, again, taking a look at primary sources, you know, she takes a look at everything from uh, accounts of various battles and who fought who and who came back with the with the uh, livery of this guy and these other guys went missing and, and that sort of thing to this is what we paid him, you know, and here's how many archers he had on, on his, in his 
group and here's how many footmen he had and here's how many pages he paid for and uh, to you know here's how many bolts of cloth his his wife purchased in 1352 and and things like that so it's it's a little bit of social history it's a little bit of military history it's a little bit of church history and it's it's all wrapped up in a neat package again through the lens of this one particular guy right um, so definitely worth taking a look at um, we did mention Dorsey Armstrong earlier who's who vacated the position you now have yeah it was, a, it was a couple people before me but she yeah she was here at one point Okay. And the, I, in looking around, I did notice that with the, uh, with the COVID pandemic going on, she's become particularly popular in audible circles or audiobook circles because he had, she has a uh, great courses lecture series called the black death, the world's most devastating plague. And um, I've listened through it twice. Once when, uh, a couple years ago and then more recently because of obvious reasons. Um, and again, it's the type of thing where she takes a look at, you know, the start of the plagues in 13, you know, we'll just say the 1340s rather than trying to pin a particular year and how it spread across Europe. And then the social and economic and artistic uh, fallout from that. And, um, really interesting on its own face uh, because basically you know it, she posits and I don't have any reason to disagree that it leads it basically leads to the renaissance as we know it um, and then she also has a series on the medieval world which is pretty pretty interesting and again it's wide range and she actually starts before 1066 and, and goes and goes actually about six or seven hundred AD or AD six. 700 somewhere in there or ce whatever your naming convention is of choice uh, now you mentioned uh before france and germany by patrick geary what can you tell us about that um well i just remember um having a great time with that uh book when i first read it as an undergraduate patrick geary is a is a fantastic scholar and um and it's kind of a overview of Western Europe um, in the early Middle Ages. And I found it to be really useful. And it's just a book that, um, you know, what happens in academia is that you end up reading a lot of stuff that for whatever reason is less accessible to non-specialists. Um, and mm -hmm. so like A Distant Mirror was a really good read and there's great information in it. And, um, and it's all in all a good book. But because Barbara Tuchman is not a medievalist, she's an American historian, I think. Um, at, the, at the level of academic writing, that book is, doesn't tend to be accepted. And so that's an example of a kind of separation between um, what academics are reading and writing and what enthusiasts are reading and writing. And I don't like that separation. Um, and so I feel like Patrick Geary bridges that, um, bridges that gap really well, especially if you're interested in early medieval Western Europe. Um, and if I could also, uh, my, one of my favorite military historians is called Kelly DeVries. Um, and uh, the book that turned me on to him initially, I think was Infantry Warfare in the, um, in the 14th century. 
Um, but he's also got a book on military technology. And I think I, I tend to put him in the category of people who are interested in technological change and the way that relates to, um, to military history, uh, which I really like a lot. At, at a certain point, I mean, there's a, there's a definitely a certain aspect of the hobby that is really, really into the hardware. So yes. that's, <laughs> that's definitely a good place to, to take a look. Um, something I wish I I should have and could have done more work on when I was in college at Southern Illinois University is uh, medieval naval warfare. Um, yeah. One of the one of the professors there um, at the time, he's now a professor emeritus, uh, pretty much retired, but he was big into the into the naval warfare, especially you know the, the clashes between Venice and Genoa. And uh, in the and f- also the Ottomans for that. Oh, in the fifteenth, who? What was his name? Do you remember? <sighs> you would ask. I, I can see him. <laughs> no, that. Uh, oh, what's his first name? Uh, it's okay. I probably I probably won't know him. But that's a period that I've been that that I'm also very interested in. I mean the the um the the naval clashes of the Hundred Years' War um, seem really interesting and exciting to me, but also like. I mean, from what it sounds like, they their warships were also their traveling ships, um, mm-hmm. and and I think the cog was the main was the main pattern of of ship, and um, they seemed very much to be uh, like coming to grips, lashing the ships together, and then having a kind of land battle, but on tied together ships. Um, Mm-hmm. Which sounds really cool, but I wouldn't know how to war game it, you know, except for if the whole board was just cogs tied together, like, and you went from cog to cog, like trying to, um, trying to take them. But the, um, the Mediterranean in the 15th century, I'm very um, interested in, and I love the look of the, um, the galleys during that period. And um, yeah, that, that's just a great period for naval, um, naval military history. Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit because um, we've both been looking. Well, I've been buying and, and painting uh, the skull and crown, triumph of death skeletons. Right, so nice. Um, yeah, those are great. If you go on Thomas's site, and I'll have a sh- link in the show notes, he is also doing 15th century uh, galleons and galleys. Really, I feel like I was uh, just on that yeah. site looking at his looking at his the the um the fighting rabbits that he's reproduced mm-hmm. from medieval marginalia and manuscripts. I think that is so amazing, and I love it. Um, but I didn't see yeah. I didn't see any galle- galleons and galleys on there. But but I will absolutely go back on and look because I love that period. And yeah. I've, got, I've got a bunch of um galleys in one twelve hundredth scale. Um, that I put on a couple games with, and it's been fun. Um, the professor I was referring to is John Dotson, D-O-T-S-O-N. Mm, I, yeah, I don't know him. It was going to be a long shot anyway, but um, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, some folks like to take, you know, for better or worse, they might take their inspiration from movies. Sure. And that's okay. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's certainly... There's certainly entertainment value to be derived from not only the movie, but also possibly basing a game on a movie mm-hmm. um there, I'm, there's hundreds of them out there in the period i mean you know in the 30s and 40s you couldn't shake a stick without hitting a, a robin hood movie for crying out loud right yeah um, actually my favorite medieval movie is the court jester 
the musical, the court jester, I still will, will defend that movie all the way to the grave. That's a fantastic movie. Oh yeah. Who, who is that? Who's, who's got that? Um, or who was in that one? It was, it's an older movie. There was a, there was a guy called Danny Kay. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he, he stars in it and it's, um, it's, a kind of spoof on Robin Hood, but um, the kind of spoof mm-hmm. that's more of a love letter than uh, than slapstick making fun of. Right, right, right. So kind of Mel Brooks before Mel Brooks. Yeah, although Mel Brooks doesn't like this. I feel like you can watch The Court Jester, which is a comedy and a musical, and you can leave thinking like, um, you know what, that was really cool. I want to I want to paint somebody who looks like that. You know, like it, whereas Mel Brooks, you leave thinking like, OK, the whole thing is ridiculous. Um, at least for me. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, I mean, you could also, speaking of Danny Kay, you could also look at a, uh, I believe he, wasn't he in a film version of Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court? Oh, you know, I think he was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen it, but, um, yeah, I think he was. Huh. Yeah. So, um, so there's that. And since we're going to mention a novel in that period, we, we might as well mention, uh, there's the the Cadfail mm-hmm. mysteries about a Welsh priest or monk, I should say. Yeah. And there's also a, a TV a TV series starring Derek Jacobi as Cadfail, also. Oh yeah, that's um, the one. That's the what I'm familiar with. Yeah, as the TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's on on Prime. If anybody's interested in that. Uh, but uh, oh, what was I going to say about books? Um, Oh, I lost it. I think we're talking about movies, no? Yeah, movies, books. I mean, it's all yeah, it's all in there. But uh, um, well, I've got the name of the rose, which is a fantastic movie and a a fairly impenetrable book. <laughs> Let's be yeah, honest. It really is. And any time a book goes from you know, in, in translation, in English, it goes from English to Italian to Latin to Greek back to Italian and then English in yeah. a page or two. It's it's going to be some heavy, pretty heavy lifting. It is. <laughs> yeah. But but I still hold, you know, as a medievalist, my training um, involved a number of languages that mm-hmm. as an English professor, I don't use if that makes sense. Right. So because I came from medieval oh. studies, like it was important for me to have a smattering of German, but, which I barely did, but also French was important. Also Latin was important. And then if you have both of those, you can pick up maybe a little bit of Spanish. Um, and then now I don't have access to basically like a little bit of Latin still, but a lot of that is gone. So whenever I try to say something in French or in Latin, I end up sounding like Salvatore I don't know if you remember him from the late name of the rose. Ron Perlman played him in the movie and he speaks yeah. like a mash of English and Italian and Latin and French and just kind of whatever comes out. And, um, and that is exactly what I sound like. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, and, and it's such a great, it is a great movie, um, richly detailed, pretty dark, but I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a world lit only by fire, you know, to borrow from Rush lyrics, but weird. It's a, if you're not familiar for the listener, that's not familiar with the name of the Rose. It's basically a detective story set in a 14th or 15th century monastery. And 
hilarity ensues. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, I stumbled across a movie on Amazon called Flesh and Blood. Came out in the eighties. Sure. Um, with Rutger Hauer and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, Jason Lee. Yeah, and um, Rutger Hauer is a mercenary, and he's got a band of mercenaries with him, and it kind of captures the the arms and armor and the uni- and the clothing isn't a hundred percent. It's kind of the pastiche of yeah, you know, medieval slash Renaissance clothing and armor in in quotation marks. But I think it captures the the essence of these armed bands basically traveling through southern France and northern Italy, you know, basically doing what they know what to do, which is cause violence and in, in order to make money, whether they're getting paid by it or they're, you know, making their own way by stealing and taking over other people's castles and then vacating them. And uh, so it, it captures that period or at least that aspect of the period. It does. Yeah. And it does it really well, but that movie also is a, um, has been a source of frustration for me. Um, and I, as a medievalist, I'm frustrated mm-hmm. by a lot of movies set in my period or near them. So just like, uh, Spoiler alert, I'm kind of a jerk about it. Um, But I do, like, first of all, there is a real hesitancy on the part of filmmakers to really lean into medieval and Renaissance fashion. And I find that Mm -hmm. to be a bummer. Um, uh, The military dress of Lansconnects and other people of the 15th century and early 16th century are so cool. And you can see that every time you, you break open a box of Perry miniatures or look at the Foundry Lawns Connect range or um, like, well, any of the, well, you know this because you're collecting this project. Um, and so I wouldn't mind at some point somebody actually enjoying it enough to be like, well, I won't just put everybody in black leather pants and a white button down, which seems to be the standard inexplicably. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, like, let's have some somebody who actually enjoys the period if you're, you're doing a setting, a period setting. Like, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that um, Flesh and Blood, like Game of Thrones, which came so much, so much later, um, do, do a thing, they both do a thing that I do not like. And I think most people would also not like it if they were able to see what was happening. And what that thing is, is that it puts me in the position as watcher to enjoy sexual violence. Mm. And that might be a little bit of a, a, I don't mean to be so forthright about, about the way that movies tell you what to enjoy or not, but um, I believe that when you look at the, the scenes of sexual violence in Game of Thrones and the scene of sexual violence, the kind of explicit one in Flesh and Blood, it, there, it is hard to escape that it is filmed in such a way that is supposed to simultaneously make you think like, oh, poor girl, but also I'm sitting here seeing real boobs, um, seeing that she's actually gonna be okay with this guy and end up with him that I'll see mm-hmm. her in a sex scene with him later, right? Like there is a way to film someone being victimized that actually doesn't even require me to see their naked body. 
And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not being a prude. I don't mind nudity when it happens in films, but the association of sexual violence, the Middle Ages, and a kind of general, well, that's how it was acceptance. That is a thing that, mm-hmm. that I don't want to see in a movie and that is not borne out in the texts from that period. Sexual violence, right. I think, was always an issue. But the idea that in the Middle Ages, it was so common that it was just expected. Um, that's really mm-hmm. about our, our writing that into the past rather than it being so much the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I definitely think there's room for that, for that conversation. And I, it's in the show notes. I, I do want to get to some of the more uncomfortable aspects of the era and how mm-hmm. maybe those are portrayed. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry if I, I also soapboxed there for a second. That's a good that I have a tendency to do. No, that that's okay, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because we can get back to that. I did. I did want to mention a few other movies. Yeah. Um, Henry V. You know the the Shakespeare play. Yeah. Um, Brana is, with all due respect to Sir Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. um, my Henry V. Yeah. Whenever someone talks about Henry V, I I imagine Kenneth Branagh, and that's just that's just how it is for me. And the battle scenes are done really well. Mm-hmm. The costuming is done pretty well. I think they they try to get away with the with the knit sweater dry brushed with silver paint. <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> Even in close up uh, sometimes, yeah. But I'll tell you what, yeah. Um, if you if you were to if my if my entire gaming experience was somehow the combination of Brian Blessed in Henry V and Brian Blessed mm-hmm. in Flash Gordon, I would be happy. <laughs> that would be just fine with me. Or Brian Blessed in uh, Black Adder as well. You know? you know, I never watched that show very much. I feel like I should have, but it came at a time it hit at a time that I didn't really have access to a TV, and so I just kind of missed it. It's on Amazon. Yeah, I should. I would be remiss if I didn't mention probably my third favorite Monty Python movie, Monty Python: The Search for the Holy Grail. Any time you get a group of more than three gamers, someone's gonna quote it. So yeah, we might as well just away and mention it. Um, and it's you know it, it's the you could almost argue it's it's the cynical kind of thumbing nose of authority king arthur like you mentioned earlier you know this king arthur is of every age and that's the king arthur for the late 70s in in britain yeah yeah definitely you know there's also uh, there's been a couple of different people who've done warhammer bretonian armies based on the costuming in monty python and search of the holy grail Going, I mean, going so far as even the uh, the wooden rabbit as as some type of siege engine. So I don't remember do that. Is, was that really the case? Oh yeah, there's there's people that have done Monty Python based Warhammer armies ever since huh. there was Warhammer. That's funny. Uh, all you got to do is Warhammer Monty Python and and they'll show up. Yeah, that's funny. That'd be great. So and, and that does lead me to and again, we'll talk about miniatures a little bit later, mm-hmm. but the Victorian out of australia has a spanish inquisition set and it's 
and it's the three Spanish cardinals from the Monty Python sketch. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Well, by God, she's she's got them on her site, and you can get the set of all three, and you can, you know, you can model one of them with a couple of soft cushions, and that's awesome. <laughs> and, and the whole thing. so those are those are fun miniatures that will eventually be making it into my Lance Connect project. But oh, great! Um, that's awesome. You mentioned Excalibur. Again, we're back to King Arthur with the full mm-hmm. plate. Yeah. Uh, with his uh, with his metal skull cap and the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's, I remember watching Excalibur. My grandmother, for some reason, I don't know if, if one of... See, my grandmother was married twice, so I'm thinking maybe like her stepson or something got her and my step granddad a, a video disc player in the early 80s but i remember she had excalibur on video disc and i remember <laughs> i remember being six or seven and watching it which is probably not an appropriate movie for a six or seven year old but hey you know it was the 80s <laughs> it was the 80s right <laughs> um so yeah i mean that's it's classic. It is. Uh, I mean, I have the same. I have the same thing to say about the sexual violence and assault in that movie as other ones. But it, but if there is a movie that is my go-to to um, to really just be inspired by armor and people in armor and what it should feel like and look like, that's absolutely the movie. And now, you added to the show notes here. You mentioned a show called Britannia. Yeah, I mean, that's not really medieval. It's uh, theoretically, I guess, it's set in a fantasy version of late Rome. Um, mm-hmm. But I find so few historically based movies that I enjoy or that inspires me towards like to imagine things. Um, and that show really did. I didn't think it was going to, but um, some of the imagery, some of the the choices they made for castles or for um, for what the warriors looked like or um, who some of the characters were, I really did, ended up enjoying that quite a bit. Well, I, I guess we need to get back to a little down for a moment, but I, I did put it in the show notes. And I do think it's important to mention um, there are some rather unsavory aspects from our perspective, looking through a 21st century lens that come up in the era. And, you know, you mentioned depictions of sexual violence. There's, you know, in a broader sense, there is you know, subjugation to an extent, not a hundred percent of women. There's, there are, well, the wife of Bath being a documented example, uh, you know, from Chaucer of being, you know, a a liberated woman in more than one way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it's definitely, I mean, there's a whole raft of issues, again, looking from a 21st century lens with, with gaming in that period, I, I think as war gamers, we have the luxury of ignoring some of the more unsettling, unsavory, uh, ugly aspects of the periods we game. I mean, that's certainly the case with anybody that plays, for example, a World War II game. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. Um, you know, it, do we i'm not saying i want to see any of these things depicted on the table but i think that there is certainly room for people to take pause and consider some of these issues when they're putting the game together yeah i think 
I mean, I think so. I have a lot to say about this and I'm gonna try and um, keep it short. Um, it's hard not to, it's hard to play in 15s or 28s and want, and want to find opponents and not be dragged into World War II. I tend not mm -hmm. to like modern stuff that much, but I was dragged into World War II. And I have to say, there is nothing from the Middle Ages I find as off-putting as playing against someone who's playing Nazis. Mm -hmm. You know, I like I'm a Jew. The, I, mm. I can't, and when I'm at an event and someone's dressed in a German military outfit um, mm. from World War II, like a real person, I don't really want to have a conversation about how they're dressed as um, a German regular army and not a Nazi. You know, like that's just mm -hmm. like, I can't even see my way through to have that conversation really, because I find it really off-putting. And so mm -hmm. I guess that's, and I'm not criticizing those who enjoy that. I'm just saying that I think that every period has its share of horrors. Um, and if you really enjoy a period and it brings you joy, and if you're able to understand that even while you're enjoying it, there might be some things to think about in, you know, a little bit deeply, um, I think it's okay not to represent it on the table or not to deal with it. You know, I don't, while I don't really enjoy World War II gaming because I can't, I can't um, not be Jewish while I'm playing. Um, right. I also don't need for anybody to put down concentration camps on the table and have a game around them. That would be even worse, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, if I had my way, like finally, when I had to make some bad guys, for my World War II, my World War II army quickly just became like I have so like I have some World War II stuff in my 28s, um, but really I just started I putting I started putting in Rocketeers and Captain America mm -hmm. and um, like the German force that I have is mostly zombies uh, with the werewolf mm -hmm. and like you know like I think it's okay to selectively fantasize about periods. Um, and so I think that's probably good to do with the Middle Ages and the Renaissance as well. I mean, um, th there are just a range of horrors from that period that I think we'd all rather not think about. And for me, it's so, so far in the past. And my interaction with it is so based on enthusiasm for antiquary concerns like, ooh, the armor is cool, or oh, the sword is neat, or oh, there's a story that was written in that period that I think it's okay to, to dodge around it. I will say though that I think it's I think it's good for us to be aware of what is actually from the period and what are mm -hmm. the things that we project backwards onto the period. And so mm -hmm. I don't like Game of Thrones because it pretends that sexual violence was much more rampant than I think it was. And I don't know why it's pretending that. Um, but I think that's something that we could be critical of. I think that if you like, if you were to fly back in time to um, to medieval York and walk around, you might not see anybody with very dark skin, but you could. You absolutely mm -hmm. could. And if you were to fly to London or Sandwich, like you would see more people with dark skin, although it's possible that you'd have a day where you didn't, same as any place today that, where there isn't a lot of diversity. 
Um, right. So I feel like that puts us in a position not to not to lecture anybody, not to um, not to soapbox, but instead to really think about questions of race in a very comfortable and non-confrontational way. Like I'm not asking for anybody to redo their whole armies, but a while ago I started painting every figure that I have in one of three skin tones, very dark, medium, and fairly pink. And when it comes to Vikings, I, I made that choice when I was doing Warhammer, or like six edition. So then I started painting mm-hmm. some Vikings and I was like, all right, let me keep just double down on this and see how it worked. And I really, I really thought that like the stuff that it made me think about and consider, I felt like were things that I wouldn't have if I had not played around with history in that way. Um, and I think there is a tendency for us to want the Middle Ages and the Renaissance to have been entirely Caucasian. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't match up with history. And so that's a thing that we can be aware of. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it certainly doesn't, it doesn't match up with the art that's readily available either. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's people of all kinds of skin tones in art from the period. So it stands to reason that people with those skin tones were actually walking around right. in that era. And they had boats, you know? I mean, that's the thing mm-hmm. that I think the Disney version of the Middle Ages, which tends to present um, racially discrete geographies, right? There's the place where Mulan lives, and then there's the place where Ariel lives, and never the twain, right? But that's not, I mean, if you read... Um, there's one story in Chaucer, the um, the Man of Law's Tale, where the whole beginning is these people going back and forth between Italy and C- Italy and Syria, and um, and the story progresses from the interactions between those things, and it's not represented as any kind of weird thing. It's just a standard trade route between Italy and Syria. So. Um, mm-hmm. with the, and, and no reference whatsoever of like people having dark skin or different languages like that's just not a concern. Yeah. And I'm not particularly familiar with Chaucer. I, I need to get familiar with Chaucer, but you know, I, I got to think at the time there, you know, language was concerned probably because, you know, they had a second language that, you know, lingua franca, whatever that might've been at the time that the traders would have been using, I would think. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good place to put that. I do want to have a larger discussion on this topic in a future episode um, and maybe a roundtable like we did uh, a couple weekends ago uh, on, on the topic. I, I think if, if you'd be if you'd be up for that for a more in-depth discussion in the future, I, I'll... Uh, I absolutely would, yeah. I'll warn you in advance. I find myself on social media right now constantly on the verge of of losing my temper about 40K. I just don't know why sane people like it. And I want to yell that out, even though I follow a lot of people and I'm really interested in a lot of people who I think are lovely people and politically right where I am, and they also enjoy it. And so I have very mixed feelings about that. But um, so I'll warn you in advance that if 40K comes up, I will have lots of energetic questions. I, I probably would not be the best person to ask those questions of because I am not into what, you know, the the volumes and volumes and volumes of lore that they have produced in the last 20 years or so. I am I am very much an old hammer guy. Yeah. And <laughs> my interest in in the 40k 
progression ends uh, roughly around 1997, 98. <laughs> yeah, I, well, that's kind of what it, not, that's what it comes from a little bit. You know, when I was when I was just a lad, like 16, 17, and working in the Complete Strategist, I used to look at the 40K models a lot, and I wasn't playing a game I could use them for, but like those Space Marines with the beaked helmets, and I just thought like, wow, those mm-hmm. are really cool, man. I, like, I wonder what stories would be told about them or who they are, and I kind of made up like like just based on the aesthetic, like what I thought it would be for these space Marines. Mm -hmm. And then it was only when I moved to like to Long Beach, this is like maybe six years ago that my friends hit 40 K hard and they dragged me along with them. And then I started reading like what they wrote about. I was like, Oh my God, this is horrible. Like this is the most fascist, like heartless thing that I've ever encountered, you know? And and so I had that, that negative reaction, but like I said, lots of people are lovely who do it, so I just need to learn how and why. Yeah. Um, well, we'll have uh, we'll talk to my friend Dan Gomez, who is big into the 40k and a, a, a righteous dude in his own right. So we'll maybe we'll get him in, in on that discussion. But all right. Anyhow, let's get back to the medieval period, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about some games, just a few. Um, I think for the most part, if you put in medieval war game uh, in your search engine of choice, you'll get plenty of choices, but I did want to highlight a couple. Um, and we're going to look at three different levels of game, tactical slash skirmish. You know, we're talking one figure equals one man, maybe 30 figures per, per player. Uh, we'll talk grand tactical or big battle where a unit might be uh you know, a, a unit of 20 figures might represent 300 men. And then the operational strategic uh, level, which is we're getting into board games here a little bit, but there is one game I wanted to talk to talk about in, in that regard. Um, so as far as what I've got here, um, and feel free to jump in with some of your own favorites, uh, Lion Rampant uh, from Osprey, one of their, as one of their first blue book uh, miniatures games, very popular. Yeah, it's a great game, uh, too. Had, I love that game. Okay. I have not played it myself nor even read it, so you're, you're the expert here. Uh, what, what do you like about it? Well, um, you know, I like a, a range of games. I don't have a favorite style, but um, mm-hmm. of the games that try to reproduce the difficulty of controlling troops, um, this has a fun mechanic uh, where you have to activate your troops to move, you activate your troops based on what you want them to do. And it's all based on a 2d6 roll. Um, so there's a little bit of a curve that, that you can anticipate it being easier or harder. Um, and so uh, like if you're trying to move your, your, your knights, your medieval knights, the roll is actually pretty hard to get them to activate. But if you're getting them to charge, it's pretty easy. Because the idea that it's playing with, and you know, this is both historical and ahistorical because knights did a lot of things and did a lot of different places. But it's fun to imagine the knights as just being like, you know, you send over um, a flag, a flag bearer to tell them to like ride the long way around to hit the flank. And they just look at you and shake their head like, no, we are going straight ahead as soon as we can. And that's that was kind of like, refusing to follow the orders that's fun and um and what happens with a game is as soon as you fail to activate a unit it's immediately the other person's turn um 
but the other person has is faced with the same challenges that you are because you're using a common army list. Like you're both choosing from the same set of, of troops and there's not that much mm-hmm. difference. So where it's terribly disappointing when you roll on your first activation and you don't even get a turn because you fail the first time out, the same thing happens plenty of times with your opponent. And so it just bounces back and forth and you're continuously like losing the initiative or getting it back. Um, and then the mechanic is really uh, simple, but also kind of elegant, where you really get the sense that you've played a game and that the, your choices mattered. And you know, in terms of um, in terms of realism, I think it has uh, there are some problems with it, but that's not actually a thing that I care that much about. Like it's mm-hmm. very hard to um, it's very hard to hit one enemy unit with two of your units at the same time. And so mm. you really kind of go one at a time, which doesn't, which means that flanking isn't as powerful as maybe it should be in the real world, but it's still just a great game. And how's that maybe modeling the difficulty and coordinating multiple units in the, in that period or? No, I think it, I, I mean, I mean, it could be, but it didn't seem to me an element of design. It seemed to be like an intentional element of design. It seemed like um, they really have a great system for operating one unit at a time and resolving everything about that unit before you go on to the next unit. And trying to charge okay. two units at the same time would get in the way of that. And I'm going by memory because it's been a year or so since I've played. Um, but that that was one thing that I kind of be, was aware of. And then I thought, Meh, okay, that's all right. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I did want to mention a friend of the show, Jay Wiley, over at Wiley Games, is working on a medieval version of his Fistful of Lead skirmish rules called Might and Melee. Um, He he envisions that as a three-game, or a three-book opus. (laughs) Uh, The first book is straight medieval. Um, The second game is going to introduce magical elements and then the third uh magical and fantasy elements in the fourth or the third book is going to be straight up dungeon crawl oh that sounds great so yeah and i i full disclosure i am one of the play testers for for wiley games uh, my brother chris and i are have been mentioned in the in the credits last couple books that have come out so i'm i'm not ashamed to say that uh the rules really are a lot of fun. Um, they are as historical as you want them to be. Uh, they're not so much rules as they are toolkits and that you can kind of play around with some of the mechanisms and some of the traits and abilities that you give your individual figures or units um, because he does have a way of uh, trading out a, you know, a fair to Midland fighter for just three scrubs. Right. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, they, they are a lot of fun. I'm what we've been playing with, with the medieval version really adds a lot of flavor to it. And we're looking forward to when he starts putting those books out, which I I think should be, I'm thinking he's going to aim for, uh, March or April of next year. I think he's hoping to take it to salute in London. Hmm. So Stay tuned. Uh, I'm sure I'll be talking about it on Twitter and Facebook when when the time comes. Right. Uh, uh, speaking of friends of the show, uh, Tim Spikowski is the U.S. distributor for Footsore, 
and they have the Barons War, uh, which is uh, 13th century knights and their retainers going on raids and beating the crap out of other minor nobles. <laughs> so um, those rules and, and figures are out. I, I don't have any experience with the rules, so I can't comment on them just to say that they are out there. Um, and it looks like you're adding uh, Pig Wars. I think that's kind of in the Dark Ages, early medieval, kind of like Saga. Uh, it is, minor, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, it's an old game at this point, but we used to have a great amount of fun with it. And, um, you know, the point system was how, ma- how much livestock you could carry off the table. And I just... Uh, just redid my gaming table, my gaming room right now, and I was, and I got two display cases for the first time in my life, which is very exciting. And I was just uh, mm-hmm. marveling at how many pigs I had painted, you know, and chickens <laughs> and geese and like all these like things that you would like essentially never be able to use in a game. Um, yeah. So we used to have a great time with with uh, pig wars. I mean, you, have you ever dealt with geese in real life? You would not want a unit of those on facing you on the table. Yeah, no, I haven't, but I, I also don't have any desire to. But, you know, in terms <laughs> of tactical and skirmish games, I, I really, um, I find that I have a lot of fun with, uh, with fantasy games, too, just using historical miniatures. And that goes back to what we were talking mm-hmm. about before, that for me, fantasy gaming like Dungeons and Dragons was always about historical and then maybe adding in fantasy elements if you want to. And so there's a game called Frostgrave, which I think is a lot of fun. Um, But I always thought that like there's, there's so many ways that you could have two factions. I'm thinking now of it being um, uh, Italians and Germans uh, fighting mm-hmm. against Ottomans in a burnt out town somewhere in Eastern Europe um, using Frostgrave. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of the angle I'm going for with, with my project with Lance Connects because the, it, it floats between being an imagination, strictly pseudo historical uh, no fantasy elements to, well, maybe I'll dip in a little bit of fantasy, either with some risen skeletons or Skaven, Ratmen. <laughs> I call them the, I call them the minions of Sutar, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the town that they're, they're operating in has, has had a, a cataclysmic uh, earthquake. So that gives me an opportunity to um have sections of the town be damaged and maybe some of the other sections are all right and right yeah yeah. oh that sounds awesome and this is what i was talking about before like your project i mean your lawns connects i think are just going to be great on their own but the project of mixing them with especially the skull and crown undead which are which are so so well representing the um the art of Albrecht Durer and other artists in the 16th century who are like are, are giving full reign to that infatuation with death. Um, you mm-hmm. I think like we don't have a category for art historical wargaming, but that's what you're doing mm-hmm. in that project, at least part of it, right? And and it's such a, a neat idea to explore 16th century art through wargaming. And if we're being honest, mm-hmm. that's probably a lot of what we do anyway, you know. Absolutely. And, 
yeah, I'm, I'm continually looking for for new guys I haven't discovered yet, and you know, pinging ideas off off Thomas, and because he's our he's seen it all, man. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, he's he he's seen everything that there is to see as far as Lons Connect art and whatnot. But it, it's it's a fun journey for me being the enthusiast, not the art historian or the no longer an academic historian anyway. You know, once once I got my my sheepskin, I, I, I was done being serious about history. But right, yeah, uh, it, it it is a lot of fun. And speaking of Thomas, um, I I will add, you had mentioned a uh, a joust game, and he does have a game called Breaking Lances. I don't think it's available for sale yet, um, but he is working on that, uh, and mm. it is a joust game tilting on horseback and also melee on foot and yeah. that should be coming up soon he's doing uh both the mounted and foot knights are based off of the codex manessa and uh to the point where he's you know lifting or borrowing i should say um basically the pattern that had been established because there's you know two or three patterns for each night in the, or each night is based off of two or three patterns uh, that was basically just, you know, copied for the next one. Okay, well, okay, here's, you know, pick your headdress and what the comparison on your horse looks like. Okay, you like that one? Great. That's the one we'll put in the book. And, oh, you've got a, a red fish jumping over, you know, on a white field. Okay, that's your, that's your heraldry. Great. And yeah. there you go. And, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. really, it's really interesting. If, I would, if it's not on the sales site, he's definitely got tons of pictures on his blog, and I'll I'll put links to both in the show notes. Yeah, I would love that. I mean, I have a I have a tournament game project that I'm always painting on a little bit here and there, um, but it's so specific. Like, the it should be known that the tournament, as we think of it, as two knights with a jousting across a barrier is quite late and it might even just be a Renaissance thing. So the tournament mm-hmm. that I'm interested in and Manasa seems like it's maybe 13th century. If, if I'm just looking at the pictures, um, the tournament from that period, I think we might see more of what would be called a grand melee, um, which mm-hmm. is just a great amount, like a, like between your town and the next town over um, is the battlefield and there's not going to be any archery and everybody uses a dull weapon but those are the only mm-hmm. rules and you can take whoever you want and so i have this kind of using using a game that that game i was talking about before harm master battle lust which is pretty detailed mm-hmm. um i ran this once in texas before i moved away and i've been preparing for it ever since um uh, i think it could be a lot of fun um but i but i want miniatures that i want miniatures that will allow me to have a knight with a lance on horseback when full heraldry. And then that same knight on horseback with a sword for when his lance breaks. And then that same knight on foot for when he gets knocked down. And then that same knight knocked out on the ground for when he gets taken out and someone comes up to take him prisoner. Like that is like each person needs to have all of that going on. Plus a lady wearing the same, um, the same heraldry who can be with the gallery, um, like trying to manipulate the court, like all of that I want to happen. So in, in my mind, like the good tournament game, you play 
one character, but you have all these different like statuses of that character that you switch out. Oh, that'd be great. I'd be, that'd be great. I, I think you're you're probably going to be looking at the Perry plastics for that. The Actually, uh, Hundred Years War plastics. Yeah, the Hundred Years War plastics are really nice, and that would have been a good way to do it. Except for I really like the the thirteenth century better. And so, oddly enough, um, the um, Gripping Beast got me most of the way there because they tend to reuse the same helmets on foot and on horseback. And um, it's very easy if you get a pack of their mounted knights and their foot knights from the, from, I think it's, they call it maybe their crusading period, um, but it's 12th and 13th century. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to find all the matches. Nice. And then, and then I have a pack of, um, of, I think it's foundry knights who are like downed. And I've just been like hacking away with my, with my utility knife, like doing head swaps and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Um, we are going to talk more about model lines in a minute, so okay. I'll put a little asterisk, asterisk next to one in particular, and we'll talk about add to the notes here. I think that covers that for our tactical and skirmish type games. You know, borderline light RPG, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned so we can start talking grand tactical, big battle. You mentioned DBA earlier. I'm a fan of DBA myself. Um, I like the relative simplicity of it. I like it as a friendly game. I don't want to play in a tournament. Oh, yeah. And and I, I think that it would be a lot okay. of fun to do uh, appropriately matched groups in time and space, basically is what I'm saying. Because there's, there's plenty of times at DBA tournaments, because the, uh, the recruits uh, gaming show that I, I love going to late September. They're doing a virtual recruits this year uh, on the 26th of September, coming up here pretty quickly, actually. Um, but they always have a DBA tournament. And, you know, it's the, it's the same story I'm sure you've heard before, you know, Aztecs fighting Vikings or, you know, Sung Chinese or what have you. And yeah. it gets a little fantastic there. But it is a smart little game. It's, you know, you it's it not is. a huge investment. You know, you do your 12 elements yeah, and maybe a few options and, and that's it, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. That's how I feel about it too. I think you probably have more experience than I do with it. Um, I mean the, here, the only, I play with, with a few friends every Wednesday, I have a kind of open air wearing mask DBA game with, <laughs> with, a, with a friend, Harry and, and with my friend, Sean, um, and we just started that and that's fun even though we're, we're breathing through mast and it's and we're in the front yard with the mosquitoes but i mean that can be fun but i really haven't played that game enough and i want to play it more so if if i have my way i would be playing mixed matches all the time just because i want to see the most amount of other people's painting you know i want to see like, I don't care if people bring Sun Chinese, if I get to see that army and play against it and see what's what, like, that doesn't bother me at all. But, but here, the, the people that I play with have, have never wanted to play an out of period match. So every game I play is one person providing both sides or are you talking and raging and like, oh, you have that? I have these guys who can go against them. And that's just kind of the rule here. So it seems kind of like, wonderfully carefree to be like oh yeah bring your vikings against my medieval french let's do that you know yeah i mean 
I'm, I'm not gonna you know anybody can do what they want that's the great part about the hobby yeah um i just think from you know if i were to do if i were to do it of course you know i'd if i were to do it myself i'd get back into doing you know doing two matched armies and and, and it's dead simple i mean the rules are actually pretty simple uh yeah it's when you get into that tournament setting that people get really bent out of shape over individual miniatures and you know well that's 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 a 46 degree angle it's not 45 degrees and and that sort of thing and that yeah. speaks more to the tournament mindset than it does the rules themselves so it could be um, and i think also it's probably an element of 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 having enough of it like here i play in when i'm not playing with my local people here i'm playing in tournaments exclusively but the tournaments have like i um like i've come in third in two tournaments and in one tournament there was four people and in the other one there was five you know and yeah. and so um the people the tournament really here for dba is just a reason for people to get together and play and nobody's really taking it that seriously everybody's just happy to have their armies out and show them off. And so it's just a very different, I, I'd imagine it's salute. It's the, the volume is turned up on competitiveness and, um, and making good showing. And here it's just not so much. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. So um, now you, you added hail Caesar. Uh, yeah, to our list I, really, and... I really like hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I didn't initially, when I, you know, I really like the idea of a community and painting with other people and following online what people are doing. And so for me, um, Warhammer Ancient Battles was just a great thing to learn about and then a great thing to paint for. And even before I knew anybody who was doing it, I was like paging through my foundry uh, catalogs planning out how big an army I could have, like, could I make a thousand points? And then when I did, it was like, oh, right, what's my next goal? And then when I finally mm-hmm. met some people who were playing it, I just loved being around people and seeing their big armies. And so when it tanked, um, I thought that we would all find one successor game and stick to it. And that didn't really happen. And that bums me out. Um, Hail Caesar, mm-hmm. I thought of at the time as a successor to Warhammer Ancient Battles. And so I didn't like it initially because it was just way too loosey-goosey. And I didn't um, and I didn't know how you could be competitive with something so so <laughs> written in such a, a lazy way. Um, mm-hmm. But then, like, I, I unclenched is what happened. And my friend Sean, who I do a lot of gaming with, um, came back from England where he was doing his PhD. And... Uh, and we played it um, not competitively, but with me pres- uh, painting and putting on both sides and um, just like hanging out together. Like, oh, I don't know what would happen there. What do you think? And then, you know, cause none, neither one of us cared too much about winning, but we wanted our choices to matter. And with that attitude, mm-hmm. it, it has just become one of my favorite things to play. Um, and I would like to play it whenever, whenever I can. Yeah, and it, it's it's directly related to one of the other games that I mentioned here, Warmaster Ancients. You know, it, Warmaster came on the scene. Gosh, I guess probably late nineties, early two thousands from GW. Yeah, and then they started up their Warhammer Historical, and 
all of a sudden War Master Ancients. And it's it's pretty much War Master with, with ancient armies. <laughs> so yeah. It's very very similar uh, design philosophy, very similar mechanisms to Hail Caesar. Um, it's much smaller figures. Uh, Hail Caesar aims for 28 mil War Master, much smaller at 10 mil. Uh, there are people who play it with six mil figures. Yeah. Um, and and the advantage of those smaller figures is you get you get a better impression of of a unit yeah. with those smaller figures. Uh, we've had I've had Peter Barry of Bacchus Miniatures on the show before, so my my love for small figure scale gaming is is well known. So I won't have to go into that too much. But have you have you done anything with War Master Ancients or no? Man, I mean, I feel like there are a number of, of bad tastes in my mouth from miniatures. Mm. And sometimes it's just a matter of me getting really excited about something and not having enough people to play with. And then by the time mm. I get my stuff together, everybody has moved on. And that's what it felt like right now, even now, I'm looking over at my painting desk at my army of 10 millimeter high elves for Warmaster that <laughs> somehow I can't get rid of. Like I can't even put them away somewhere. They're like literally in one of the little drawers on my painting desk as if I'm gonna like find a reason tomorrow. Um, Cause I love that, like I love the way they looked and I wanted to get to them. And then all of a sudden like nobody was doing it and I had plans for, and then, so War, with, when Warhammer, uh, Warmaster Ancients came out, I bought all the books. I still have them. I also can't get rid of those. And then me and a friend um, painted two armies in 10 millimeter, which I loved. I thought they looked really good in that scale. Um, and then uh, nobody was playing it and he didn't really want to. And then after that, I moved away and I got a different job. And so recently I converted all, all my 10 millimeter stuff into DBA armies, which works okay. And I actually, it's, it's actually my preference for DBA to have, um, to have a bigger crowd of miniatures on the base, like uh, two archers for Siloy, um, four knights across. Like it looks fun, but it's, it doesn't look like a unit. But as soon as you drop down to 10 and, and if it's the right 10 millimeter, um, cause some are, some are, are like approaching 20 millimeter, I think. Um, right. uh, I, I just love the way it looks. So I still have my war master ancient books and I would love to be able to play it at some point. I could probably press these guys back into service, these 10 millimeter, but it's something I always wanted to do. And before I knew it, everybody was out of it. Right. Right. The, uh, well, I think, I think the, Aren't the Warmaster ancient spaces twenty by forty millimeter? Yeah, they're the more. War they are. They're more or less the same. I mean, when I broke it down to T, to yeah. to DBA, I think it wasn't a complete um, taking everybody off. It was more just like moving some guys over to make a unit that I didn't have. It wasn't a hard conversion. Right, right. So that, that means it, it's unfortunate that. You know, I, I I definitely have those figures that are staring at me, and it's like, yeah, you you bought us thirty five years ago. Why haven't you played us? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you just cover your face when you 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 walk by that part of the cupboard. Yeah, and somehow 
you know, I, I've moved like four or five times since I bought them and somehow they still keep rising to the top of the pile. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. But you know, I've been carrying around, um, here, like, here's a success story for you. Back when I lived in Texas, I was doing my degree. I used to come to California once a year to see in-laws. And during that mm-hmm. trip, I would borrow the car to go to a store called Brookhurst Hobbies, which is a big mm-hmm. uh, miniature store here. A lot of people have heard of it. And at the time, they had foundry single models for a dollar. Um, oh, wow. Like, I don't know what the, what the situation was, but I used to save up my money and go and then just spend hours looking through the single models and trying to build like the the right one. And so I bought a bunch of foundry bronze age Europeans, which are just like the most oddball little category. It's like during the period of ancient Egypt, but in France or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I liked them. I thought they were cool. And they had these long spears that were all spaghetti by the time I got them because they were just like in a pile. And um, Mm -hmm. this year I painted them. I bought those when my kids were uh, around the time my kids were like one and two. My kids now are 20 Mm -hmm. and 21. So literally for 20 years I've had these and I had, now I have a bronze age project and they're almost all painted and in units ready for hail Caesar. Like I'm going to play with them as soon as the, the pandemic allows. So, so there's hope. Don't get, don't sell anything. Don't get rid of anything. Oh, Oh, oh no! There, there's a there's a horror tale or two from my college days where I converted a large number of foundry cowboys and also darkest Africa stuff into beer money. Oh you know, no! I know, but uh, yeah, that's I I don't sell anything now, so <laughs> me neither. I've had some unfortunate trades as well, but we we won't get into those. That's that's. Tales for another day. Um, One last game I did want to mention. Uh, There's a game called Sword and Spear. Um, I I don't have much personal experience with it. I have downloaded it. I've read a little little bit. Um, I think the main interest there is the activation mechanism. Yeah. Where you put, you know, you put a, you know, you have a number of dice equal to your units or number of units and you've got one color, your opponent has the other and you throw them both in a bag and um you draw out a certain number of dice and whoever yeah i think it's color yeah i think you have a total of seven dice and you're drawing them i I forget i played it uh about a half a year ago uh for the first time um and i thought it was a lot of fun i was playing with with a with a local guy here who plays a lot of dba and he hadn't played it and he wanted to try it and it was the first time actually my 10 millimeter that 10 millimeter army, uh, I used those guys for it because they had never fired a shot in anger and I just had to get them on the table. So um, I remember it being uh, a lot of fun and it's it's like DBA in the sense that you're rolling dice to see what you get to activate, but then you can also use the dice for other slightly more gamey mechanisms that I really enjoy. Yeah, that, that's they also have a fantasy version, I want to say. Oh, really? It came out like... Two, three years. Yeah, there's a Sword and Spear Fantasy as well. So, um, yeah, they're out there. Um, Going to transition one last topic or mm-hmm. one last category of discuss. And this is really the only one I'm aware of. I'm sure there's others, but I'm talking about the cla- the operational strategic level game. And that's the old Avalon Hill favorite of Kingmaker. Um, 
Have you ever played Kingmaker? I have not. I used to sell it at the store and I wondered about it often, but I've never played it. Oh, it's such a fun game. For if, if you're not familiar, both you, Elon, and also the listeners, um, it's, it's basically the story of the War of the Roses. And the players take the role of either a Yorkist or a Lancastrian noble. And you literally have presumptive, or you either have the actual king or you have heirs to the throne, whether they're legitimate or not. And you fight amongst yourselves. And the last player to have a living heir uh, or in control of a living heir wins the game. Hmm. And that's interesting. It's there's, there's combat obviously, but there's also negotiation back and forth. There's, there's all sorts of different, uh, you can't, you, well, you can win just by military. If I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I played it. It's not terribly expensive on eBay. I've seen them for 35, 40 bucks. I'm, I'm, I'd like to get it again. And then this is a, one of those regrets, right? Cause I bought it at a, at a store near me. I was able to pick up a copy for like 20 bucks. It was new, still in shrink wrap. It had just been on the shelf ever. You know, this was like uh, probably 2004 or 2005 when I bought it, you know, Avalon Hill had already been out of business for a couple of years. It, you know, just been languishing on the shelf. I, it might've been marked down or something. I bought it for like 20 bucks, something like that. Mm. And dummy me went and sold it. <laughs> So now it's 35, 40 bucks for a, for a worn copy, but right. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. It, um, one of the best gaming experiences in my life was at a convention, a gaming convention over in, uh, Champaign where university of Illinois is. And a guy had taken the mat, you know, it was a standard, uh, Avalon Hill bookcase game size so, you know, you fold the mat out or you fold the mat board out and it's probably three feet by four feet once it's all folded out. Well, he had gone and blown it up on a photocopier to the point where it was six by eight. So double the size. And mm. he had blown all the cards up as well. And instead of a little token for your forces, you had a 28 millimeter figure representing whatever noble you're supposed to be playing with the proper heraldry. <laughs> and that's cool. It was a really fun experience and, and not just because I won, but it was, it was definitely, definitely a lot of, I don't get to win games very often is what I'm saying. So, <laughs> gotcha. uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep those, those high moments in, in your head, but sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. King is a great one. Um, it would actually be, it wouldn't take much work to turn that into a campaign system. Um, oh, really? Because the way you do combat is you have cards with different numbers of troops on them. So you might, there. I forget exactly how it works, but there might be, you know, you're rolling an event, you know, you know on an event table. You know, keep in mind, this is an Avalon Hill game that was originally written in the 70s. So it's going to be pretty chart heavy. Right. And, um, you know, it might say something like recruit, you know, recruit two force cards and you come up with, you know, 300 archers and 200 minute arms. Well, that's, that's pretty, 
pretty easily translatable to a miniatures game in my book. Yeah. And so there's a combat results table in in the book for, you know, you've got so many of this and so many of that, and your opponent has this, and this is the dice you need to, to make it work. But yeah, that could easily be a, a campaign system for an ongoing uh, War, Wars of the Roses campaign if someone were, were so inclined. And that I think that would be a lot of fun myself. But yeah, that's, that that's right at the beginning of the of the era that I'm, I'm super interested in anyway. Right. And yeah. you get all that great uh, heraldry and guys, guys with a lot of metal on, on horses and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That sounds like fun. Being miniatures gamers, we got to talk miniatures. We've been interspersing, you know, sprinkling talk of it throughout the discussion. So we might as well jump in with both feet. Um, this is a, very well represented period in pretty much maybe not every manufacturer has something for you know this era and yeah. granted we are talking about, you know about a thousand years of human history so you know from soup to nuts somebody at least for western europe somebody pretty much does it right you know? yeah uh perry we've mentioned uh they're hard to beat man they they do such a good job they do they're so Uh, affordable and so good they're just absolutely my favorite sculptors yeah um of course they did a number of models for gw and foundry Mm -hmm. and vice versa and some of the stuff that they originally did for gw is now owned by foundry and vice versa and uh well i guess it's all foundry now but um just great models and like you said affordable uh they're well proportioned and the thing is you can take a look at a perry sculpt from the 80s and you can see the style the stylistics are are there yeah still to this yeah you can just tell that that that's a perry figure yeah definitely there are a couple of fantasy sculptors that are the same way but that's another that's another topic for a later discussion uh you did mention griffin East, um, they had the or still do have the Saga game, so they've got a uh, a large range of early medieval Dark Ages figures, um, and creeping into the uh, actually 11th century, even right. And you were saying 12th century as well. Yeah, they have they have a nice uh, range of of 12th and 13th century. Um, Models, I and I think they're under the Crusader line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, Gripping Beast is a weird. I, I Gripping Beast is a weird company for me. Like when I put down my Gripping Beast models next to, like for 13th century stuff next to Fireforge. I don't know if you know that company, out of Italy. No, I'm not familiar. Yeah, they. Um, you've probably seen their stuff around here and there if you were to see the box because it like. Um, because they are carried by some people, but you know the the sculpting is really good. Um, and I guess the point I'm making is that like there are a number of companies that are just better models than Gripping Beast. It seems like that are better proportioned, that are more um, that are like uh, thinner where they need to be thinner, less chunky. Their poses are more dynamic. But whatever, for whatever reason, I really like the look of Gripping Beast. Like, I don't think that they're more realistic. Um, I don't think that they're more dynamic. I don't think there's a lot of artistry compared to some others. 
but I really like the look of them. And um, like almost my entire Sassanid Persian army is gripping these stuff. And I really like the way it looks. It's got a kind of static, chunky um, uh, toy soldier look that I'm really drawn to. And I can't explain why. It's, it's a completely different reason than the, one that, than the reason I like Perry miniatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and again, that's stylistic preferences yeah. Yeah. differ but you know, and what's great is i've noticed that if you're gonna mix figures in a unit or even have different units on a table once you get you know it's that three foot rule right you know once you get more yeah. than three feet away a lot of those stylistic differences just kind of melt away anyway so yeah it's true yeah so moving on uh we did mention foundry warlord games is is huge they're they've got they don't really got the renaissance on the pike and shot yeah Um, they don't have a they don't have a ton for medieval but they do have that new lawns connect range which um which i think is pretty good and so um i i do like them for that yeah those those lawns connect figures started out as a kickstarter for a company called pro patria and I was really interested in seeing what was going to happen with that. And they ended up canceling the Kickstarter. And then because, you know, they were kickstarting to get the tooling done on a hard plastic miniatures and they just couldn't get over the hump. Hmm. Um, I think that they were re they, they had a realistic expectation of what they were going to have to spend to get the tooling done. And they just didn't get there. And, hmm. uh, they ended up selling selling out to Warlord. Now they do have the plastics and they've got a number of metals and that metal range has some interesting uh, pieces in it. Like they've got a vignette of uh, some Lance Connects uh, casting dice on a drum head. For example. <laughs> That's cool. Um, they've got a pack of looting Lance Connects and I think they've got a few camp followers also, which you know I, I like seeing those peripheral pieces like that myself. Yeah, um, I do too. Now, we mentioned earlier, uh, Footsore has the Baron's War uh, figures, so I think those are going to be about the right era for your melee project, so you might want to take a look at those. Yeah, I've seen that company, uh, the name come up, but I haven't really looked at the at the site very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, like I said, they do have a U.S. distributor. He's just down the Mississippi River for me. Tim Spikowski, he's a he's a good dude. So, oh great, um, yeah, I'll check him you out. Can, you can definitely uh, uh, be assured with getting something from him. You mentioned Fireforge. I'll have to take a look at them. Yeah, uh, I actually a did a little bit of editing for for their rule sets um, uh, because I like their miniature range a lot. And for a while, I because I teach technical writing during the summer sometimes. I wanted to build up my chops mm. a little bit uh, on some projects. So I was just offering um, free editing services to, to game companies that were pretty small. Um, and they seem like really nice people. Um, uh, and the miniatures really do look good. I, I the, um, Their spears are a little bit thick for me because I like to use brass rods, but that wasn't hard to change out. For Fireforge, I did a little bit of um, editing help for some of their uh, war games rules. And um, I mainly did that uh, so that I could build up my chops for editing because it's a, a mm-hmm. it's a class I teach every once in a while, like once every summer or right. every other summer. 
Um, but I, I did get to know the miniature line and I like it quite a bit. Cool. Um, on my list here, I have Artisan. Um, I am getting a lot of my Lots Connects from Artisan uh, for a variety of reasons. I like how they look. Um, there's a an, there's an, a company in Europe that's got a line of, I'm forgetting the name of them, like Steel Fist, maybe? Oh, are those those really high-end ones? Yeah, they're yeah. not high-end in price, but they're later, like more... Uh, later in the period so they they get really ornate and i i tend to prefer the early ones um, connects that aren't as as gaudy yeah but uh but the artisan lines connects are right where i want them to be uh they size really well against the foundry figures and they which i i've already got a number of foundry figures um yeah for lines connects and they just look I, I like how they look. Um, it also helps that uh, their U.S. distributor is Brigade Games. Oh, nice. Again, yeah. another show, Lon Weiss. Um, he carries that line. And, uh, you know, like, you know, do business with your friends, they say, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I, I want to say Artisan also has... A hundred years war line, but I could be wrong. Do, 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 do. You know, that's the kind of thing that I feel like um, I should know. Oh, here we go. Um, taking a look at their website, Arthurian Carolingians, uh, Moors and Vikings, and then yeah, and then then they get into the Lance Connects and the Swiss. Mm. So, not. Not quite as wide a range, but again, that bookend concept. If you're if you're into that sort of thing, which I am, so that works out yeah. pretty well. Yeah. Um, old glory, well, old glory is old glory, right? So it certainly is, know, yeah. And it's not my favorite company, but I just I got to take my hat off to them for just pumping out the miniatures and keeping a lot of people in let. You know, when I started. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, those were the, as I said, those were the only ones that I found and it was, I could afford them and it was nice to have soft metal that I could do head swaps or twist this or do that. Um, and I outgrew them and I ended up, I actually ended up giving them to someone who didn't make it out of Iraq, um, which was mm -hmm. sad, but, uh, mm -hmm. but, um, I, you know, even if I, even if I, it's not my first go-to company, there's always going to be a warm spot in my heart for them. Yeah, and they're. I think they fit. They fill a certain need in the hobby, also, um, because they have. They're they're the type of company that has at least a little bit of something for everything. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And if you remember, at least in the U.S., if you remember the Old Glory Buyers Club or whatever they call it, Old Glory Army, I think they call it. Um, that's a it's an annual membership fee, kind of like Amazon Prime, but you get right. a significant discount uh, on the figures. Yeah, I've thought about that, but I just don't buy enough to justify uh, um, right. the, the deal. I tell you what I what I am kind of enjoying. Again, I don't. I'm not making the argument that they're the best ever, and I did get in when the, it was less expensive. But the 28 millimeter Lepanto Wars galleys from Old Glory. Um, Mm -hmm. I really like, and I've got 
like it's just a slow project. And now I think they're $68 a piece, whereas in the past, it seemed like they were 50, which was a little bit easier to, to kind of swallow. But um, I do like the idea of piling a bunch of 15th, 15th, early 16th century guys into those, uh, into, uh, you know, essentially the Christian galleys and the, and the Turkish galleys, and then like having a big game on the front lawn, you know, where the, where the grass is the water and you're just moving these guys around. Yeah. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, I could definitely see that being a lot of fun. Uh, as, Oh, you know what you could do? is for the war games for the actual mechanism that might be worth looking at the Fletcher Pratt naval war game rules. And I was listening to another podcast, um, talk about those particular rules. And Mm -hmm. I believe how they worked were everything, you know, they did it on, you know, very large offices or even a gymnasium floor. Nice. And, you would write your orders out for your ships, hand them to an umpire. Everybody would leave the room, <laughs> and the umpires, would, the umpires would adjudicate all the all the uh, all the orders. That's and cool. Come back and, like, and then you look and see what happened. Yeah, and then um, you know all the misses for the gunnery were done with inverted uh, golf tees that had been painted white. Oh, nice. You know, and, yeah. And then you get your damage reports and and all the rest. So something along those lines kind of streamlined uh yeah that could be fun yeah that would be a lot of fun um yeah that would be great now for the smaller scales um we'll we'll go over these pretty quickly but there you know there aren't a lot of companies doing smaller scales you know you're 15 10 and 6 uh peter pig they've again they've got something for everybody and actually they've got the good thing about Peter Pig is they have in-house rules for just about all of their figures. Right. Yeah. And um, some of the rules are pretty interesting. I know the World War II rules of the, oh, it's called PBI, Poor Bloody Infantry, uses a uses an area movement system. And I'm, I, I want to see more games kind of explore that space. Um, right. Because you don't fight about distances and line of sight right. with rules like yeah. that. And you can concentrate on just the effects of your decisions a little bit easier. Um, yeah, well, you, a, you and I are both fans of commands and colors. That That's everything we're yeah. talking about, I think, right? Oh, and rules, how can I, how can I forget? I had it on the list and we didn't even talk about <laughs> commands and colors. Commands colors yeah. Well, it's great. Uh, Have you played the medieval one? I have not. It's um, weird, man. I mean, it's it's gr- it's a great game. I love the game, and I love playing it. But it's called Commands and Colors Ancients. I'm sorry, it's called Commands and Colors Medieval. And it yeah. like the person who designed the cards thought it was going to be medieval because there's some late 13th, early 14th century helmet and scroll work. But every battle comes from the sixth and early seventh century, and it's all in the east, as I as I remember it. It's just it's mm-hmm. just Byzantines versus whoever's over there, um, which right. I, which I guess is medieval, but like the it it doesn't have a, a, a thing after that period. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would hope have I would hope that they'll have some expansions 
kind of broadening that somewhat uh, and heading west. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's just kind of a weird thing because, again, I really like that period. Um, And that's I have some 28 stuff painted for late Rome and and Byzantium and Huns and um, and of course, the Sassanids. Uh, But um, but when you get the box that says medieval, like you you might expect a night or two, you know, like something with a stirrup. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Days of Wonder were the original publishers of Battle Lore, and they had a. Um, it was a, granted it was a fantasy game on its surface, but it was based. Uh, they also had some scenarios. I believe in the original box, they had some scenarios for the Hundred Years' War, and then they had a couple of expansions for uh, the Scottish Wars as well. Oh. So. Cool. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, th- those are out there. And again, it's the commands and color system, but with, uh, uh, you know, fantasy veneer, and you can remove the fantasy veneer, and there you go, 100 Years War. So Right, yeah. But back to miniatures. Uh, right. We just talking about Peter Pig, um, Essex. Um, well, they probably had a 25 range also, I would imagine. I'm not particularly familiar with Essex, so I'll, I'll let you take the lead there. Yeah, I don't know him that well either. If I'm being honest, my 15 millimeter stuff has always been catch as catch can, and that often means many fakes. Um, like from mm-hmm. back in the day, where where I'm like, eh, my main stuff. Like if I want to look good, I'm doing stuff in 28, but I kind of want to get a DBA army. Can I get one for 25 dollars? Like all choices involved included. And then often there's some like old set of mini pigs, which are not great, but um, they do the job. And so with that in mind, the Essex 15s, I really like the look of, um, whereas uh, the Essex 28s, I don't really like that much. They're a little bit um, squat and cartoony for me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah. And then I, and because it's been like my 15 millimeter collection is, has been um, until recently, it was uh, pretty much just all these old minifig stuff that I was able to get um, from like HMGS sales or from eBay or like, uh, you know, from the bargain bin. Um, And so only recently have I tried to expand it out a little bit. And Curason has these really cool ranges that you just wouldn't expect. So they are who my um, Mali 13th century army comes from, which is the Sub-Saharan African kingdom um, uh, that is just kind of um, on the verge of becoming uh, Muslim, but is not necessarily Muslim yet. and it's a cool range. And I bought um, a group of, of people that maybe other people are more familiar with called Tuaregs, who are mm-hmm. um, like nomads who, who travel the, the Sahara um, for them to fight against. And, and the guy had those too. And he was really nice to deal with by email and he sent them right away. Um, I just, I had a really great experience with that company and there was all kinds of neat, uh, like Tibetan armies, um, mm-hmm. stuff that you, like all kinds of left of center stuff that you just wouldn't expect. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at their, at their site right now. And I, I originally familiar with them with their 15 millimeter sci-fi stuff. So. Oh, I haven't even um, looked at that, but yeah. I hadn't really looked at 
their historical stuff real closely. But yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting things in their historical line. Uh, Nikephorian Byzantines and right, yeah, uh, Renaissance Irish and and things of that nature. And like you said, a lot of uh, uh, Pacific, you know, Southeast Asia, Pacific Rim, Asian from various uh, various eras as well. So yeah, oh yeah, there's the Tuaregs. Lucky, lucky there, yeah, yeah, absolutely. West Sudanese and. Yeah, the Sudanese, that's what the the West African Sudanese are what my army is called when I bought it from them. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is super cool. So a little a little bit for everything. So uh, then as we move even smaller, you know, the, the usual suspects with Pendrak and Magister Militum and Old Glory. Yeah, and then I feel like there might be other people that I was looking at that I don't remember because that that I you know is just a small project for me. Is there is there two dragons? Is that a thing? I'm not familiar with it, but it probably could be. Or yeah, I um yeah, I'm just trying to remember where I got mine from. It's kind of a dangerous scale in my mind to get stuff from because it's so small that um. Like I put old, like old glory, I has miniatures that I like a lot, but they basically don't mix with any others, and in a in a pretty serious way, just because they mm-hmm. seem um, quite a bit bigger. The old glory tens, as I remember it, and so I ended mm-hmm. up with a bunch of ten millimeter, quote unquote, old glories that I just can't. That I, I don't know what. Like maybe I'll start a new project with them, but they just were absolutely not mixing with the others. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, maybe smallest in stature, but biggest in my heart is the, is the six millimeter stuff. Um, yeah, that's Bacchus, on you. Friend, that's all you. I, I don't have anything in six. Yeah, Bacchus, uh, six millimeter. Peter Berry's been on the show, friend of the show. I love the Bacchus six millimeter stuff. Recently, they redid, uh, recently he redid his 100 Years War, or oh, not 100 yeah? Years War, War of the Roses range. And they're they're lovely. They're just little little works of art. Uh, so, what do you, I mean, how's that work? Do you do you just like like do you just like spray them silver and then wash them with black and then try and hit a color here or there or like what what's the project? Yeah, it's, it's a very it's a very impressionistic style of painting, um, and it's you you paint the unit, not the man. Huh and you you get a couple strips now the way Bacchus does them is there'll be four figures on a strip that's 20 millimeters long uh-huh. uh, and so for the rules he publishes they're 60 they're on 60 by 30 millimeter bases so you might have uh, a pack of figures if i recall is 12 strips so it'll be four ranks of three strips across so Let's see, that's 48 figures in a unit on hmm. 60 by 30 millimeter bases. Wow. And so when you get four or five bases like that to make a unit, or you've got a single, even a single base like that to make a unit, it really looks like a unit. The, uh, sure. the analogy is with 28 millimeters, you know, 28 millimeter figures, it looks like, you know, a couple dozen guys taking a flag for a walk. <laughs> whereas the same table footprint the same table footprint for six millimeter figures now that's that's a couple hundred figures you know that that you're really starting to look like a, a real unit at that point 
and you know you you write your rules to take that into account and all of a sudden you're moving uh you know you're moving an entire battalion at once and it it, it looks really really good on on a table uh, huh. the last game i played with uh six millimeter figures is actually i took my well the entire ocs cadre took our uh, officer candidates to gettysburg for a staff ride which is a uh detailed battlefield tour where the participants uh, do a little research on their own and they they talk with some authority about a particular aspect of the battle and then that evening i i had gotten in touch with the little wars tv guys ahead of time and they were able to bring a gettysburg setup to our hotel and we played a six game in the it was in the it was the hotel breakfast area (laughs) And uh, the candidates had a lot of fun with it, and it was neat seeing them kind of, you know, because none of them had ever played a, a miniatures war game before. Right. And yeah. uh, so seeing, you know, getting them to see some of the different ways of exploring history that way was, was really gratifying. But That sounds neat. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to spend some time on the Bacchus uh, website just, to, I don't, oh, just yeah. to see what's what. Uh, there's and I've got way too many of their figures, but I need more. <laughs> yeah, the uh, yeah, six mm is the uh, and it's B A C C U S. There's no H in it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they're lovely figures. And again, he's got you know just reading down the catalog listings: biblical, classical warfare, Romans, early medieval, which includes your Anglo-Saxons, Normans, and Vikings. Crusades in feudal Europe, late medieval wars of the roses, samurai, mm, uh, wars yeah. of religion, wars of the sun king, da 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 da. Yeah. So it's it's he's got just about anything. Again, um, again, probably due to the Anglo-centric nature of our hobby, not a lot of Mesoamerican representation, not a lot of right. uh, Pacific Rim or uh east asia but uh well he's got samurai hard to find yeah um but yeah they're just they're just great figures and a lot of fun to play with because i mean like i said i mean you're moving you move a couple bases and you know you're you're really moving some forces at that point but yeah it is is that i love six millimeter so yeah, that's cool. Now that I think about it, I might actually have some sci-fi figures in six millimeter. Um, yeah, that's, I've I've got again <laughs> hordes of six millimeter science fiction stuff as well. So oh, really? Is it? Um, I mean, the the funny thing is, I don't have actually that much infantry. I guess I have a fair amount. Did, did you ever play uh, Cav? I haven't played it. Um, I've talked to the guy that uh, that runs it though. Um, those are ostensibly ten millimeter. Okay, so it's the so it's then the six millimeter would be um, BattleTech. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, if it's like six the millimeter. robots from Merlin the same size, but yeah, the BattleTech stuff is six yeah. millimeter. Yeah. So I actually never painted a, 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 an actual person, but <laughs> theoretically, the scale was six millimeter. Mm-hmm, exactly. There's a. Well, I mean, I could talk about six millimeter sci-fi stuff for a long time, so we'll leave that for another for right. another day. But yeah, um, 
I think that just about covers it. We we had a a good run. We we've defined what the era is, we or did. at least our idea of the era. We've covered a couple of uh, salient points, including the appeal of the era. We've mm-hmm. talked about um, some social challenges. We talked about some inspiration, either in reading or viewing. Uh, a couple of different rule sets and more than a few model lines. And I have to say, I really enjoyed our discussion uh, with Mike Whitaker and Annie Norman, uh, Henry Hyde that we had a couple of weeks ago about whether or not the historical wargaming hobby was dying. I think our consensus was, no, it's not. It's changing, but it's not dying. Yeah. And uh, this... Uh, I, I'm really glad we had a chance to talk on, on this topic. I'd love to have you on the show again in the future. So uh, I'll keep my ears open for a topic that I think you, you would enjoy. And I'll s- extend the invitation when the time when the time comes, if that's all right with you. Sounds great. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I hope I wasn't too long-winded. Oh, no, I could I could talk for hours. So, <laughs> so one, of the, one of the good things about me doing my own podcast and not, you know, I also pay for upper tier hosting so I can make a show as long as I want. So that works out pretty well. Oh, nice. So, um, Elon, thank you very much for agreeing to come on. I I really appreciate it. Um, you know, falling, falling together as we did on Twitter with, with similar interests was, was pretty cool. And I'm, I'm glad you were able to clear some time on your busy schedule to, uh, to have our chat and, I'll keep you posted on how things are going with my Lance Connect uh, project and maybe shoot you some rules for my big battle commands and colors stuff. And we'll see if we, hopefully one day, once all this is all said and done, we can meet in person and roll some dice and together and all that. That sounds like a lot of fun. I look forward to that. And thanks so much for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. It is really a pleasure talking to you. And so folks, as always, If the war game you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. Presented Wargamer's copyright, Jay Arnold, 2020. Music, Atlantica, 5. Speed limit, 35. Courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.